welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy Monday! Or if you're listening on a different day, happy that day. I myself took off Friday, so if a case was published on Friday, don't fret! I'll get to it next week. Before getting to the cases, I thought I'd mention two important other cases that touch on immigration but that aren't really about removal defense. First, the Supreme Court shot down another Bivens claim this week in Eckbert v. Boulay, this time a pretty egregious excessive force claim and First Amendment retaliation claim brought against a CBP officer. And second, in National Association of Immigration Judges v. Neal, the First Amendment claims brought by the plaintiff NAIJ were permitted to proceed because the Immigration Judges Union has been decertified. If the union still existed, the claims may have been barred. But because the IJ's union has been decertified, the former union's lawsuit proceeds. Counterintuitive stuff. And with that, here are the cases. I wanted to start off with USA v. Castillo, published by the Second Circuit on June 8, 2022. This is a pretty complicated case that arises in the federal sentence enhancement context rather than in immigration, so I'm going to be brief. In this case, the Second Circuit held that attempted second-degree gang assault in violation of New York Penal Law sections 120.06 and 110 is not a crime of violence for federal sentence enhancement purposes because conviction does not require sufficient violent force. As that definition under the ACCA for a crime of violence is materially identical to the one used in immigration, cases like this can be quite important. Like I said, it's complicated. And while I can't review every sentence enhancement case because I'd go insane and I'd be unable to practice law myself, I want to highlight this case not just because the holding is good for non-citizen, but because of some of these quotes from the Second Circuit. Quote, Under the categorical approach, the mere intent to use physical force, 
without more, does not constitute the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force. End quote. Put another way, mere attempt with an intent to use the force is insufficient for the crime of violence definition because, quote, an intent to have the presence and aid of others does not categorically involve the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force, end quote. Big holding for attempt-type crimes and the crime of violence definition which of course for immigration purposes applies to INA section 11A43F aggravated felonies. And how about this weird thing? Quote, New York law allows a defendant to plead guilty to a non-existent or legally impossible offense in satisfaction of an indictment that charges a higher offense to facilitate the plea bargaining process and further the policy interests that this process serves. End quote. That appears to be what happened here. It appears that Mr. Castillo was allowed to plead to an attempt crime that, it appears, is literally impossible to commit. Check out this decision in its entirety for more on that. But if that's true in New York, as it certainly appears to be everyone, well... Look hard into your client's statutes of conviction and conviction documents, and work closely with Criminal Defense Counsel in New York on your plea deals. Because I find it quite difficult to believe that any ultimate conviction that is legally impossible to commit will make a non-citizen removable. I don't even know what to do with that. And that is USA v. Castillo. Next up is Flores Alonzo v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on June 6, 2022. This case is about non-LPR cancellation of removal. Mr. Flores Alonzo is from Mexico and entered the United States without authorization in 2001, and he was placed in removal proceedings after being pulled over in his car. Mr. Flores Alonso had been in the U.S. for over 10 years, he did not have disqualifying convictions, and he believed that his removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to his U.S. citizen children. So he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB, which also happens to be pretty much the only form of relief that immigration law allows for people like Mr. Flores Alonso. But it's not easy to get. Quote, Although the BIA has not established a fixed definition of what constitutes exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, it has indicated that very serious health issues or compelling special needs in school are strong cases, while a lower standard of living or adverse country conditions in the country of return are usually insufficient in themselves to support a finding of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, end quote. But in conducting the analysis, all hardships must be considered in the aggregate. Mr. Flores Alonso argued that standard was met here. Quote, the loss of financial support to his kids, the fact that his infant son might remain in the United States while his nine-year-old daughter might return to Mexico with him, and the fact that whether his daughter returned to Mexico with him would be dependent on whether his daughter's mother agreed to a formal custody arrangement. End quote. But the IJ and the BIA believed the high hardship requirements unmet here. The BIA made it pretty clear, saying that immigration law expects that hardship will occur to the U.S. citizen children of people like Mr. Flores Alonso, but that immigration law is okay with that. The 11th Circuit affirmed the BIA. After Patel, 
the Eleventh Circuit cannot review any factual findings related to the denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal, and can only review anything related to this form of relief at all, if it's a legal or constitutional challenge. Mr. Flores Alonso tried to do just that. He argued that the BIA failed to properly analyze the hardship to his daughter because the BIA misunderstood what was going to happen to his daughter if Mr. Flores Alonso went to Mexico. But to the 11th Circuit, quote, the BIA held that Mr. Flores Alonso's daughter would return with him to Mexico based on the immigration judge's fact-finding, and that factual finding is unreviewable on appeal, end quote. It doesn't matter how wrong the BIA was, or wasn't, it's unreviewable under Patel. That is the framework that the Supreme Court has now permitted, based on what it believes Congress wants. As to all of it, really, quote, sympathetic as we are to his plight, we are precluded from reweighing the hardship factors now, end quote. Mr. Flores Alonso also argued that the BIA failed to render a reasoned decision, an excellent argument in the 11th Circuit, but one that the 11th Circuit did not buy here. To summarize, the BIA cited the correct legal standard and didn't obviously fail to consider all the hardships in the aggregate. Mr. Flores Alonso lost his case, and if you disagree with decisions like this and would like Congress to change the law and Patel itself, donate to Immigrants List. Links in the show notes. And that is Flores Alonso v. U.S. Attorney General. Next is Vasquez Borjas v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 6, 2022. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude. Mr. Vasquez Borjas is from Honduras and has been in the United States without authorization for many years. When placed in removal proceedings, he applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248B, the relief just discussed, based on the hardship to his U.S. citizen child if Mr. Vasquez Borjas was removed. The problem is that he was convicted of forgery in violation of Cal Penal Code Section 472, whereby he received 14 days in jail and two years probation. If that crime is a CIMT, he's ineligible for the relief, hardship notwithstanding. So is it? How should I know? Here's what the Ninth Circuit said. The categorical approach, of course, applies to the CIMT analysis. What's a CIMT? No one knows. But lots of panels believe that whatever it is, crimes that require fraud as an element, in all convictions, in all cases, in all jurisdictions, and on all planets, meet that definition. Mr. Vasquez Borjas, of course, knew this, and so he argued strenuously that this was not the case here. Mr. Vasquez Borjas was specifically convicted of, quote, misdemeanor forgery for possession of a counterfeit government seal, a social security card, that he knew was fake, end quote. Mr. Vasquez Borjas' attorney argued that there were three ways to violate that statute, and one of them didn't require any showing of fraud at all. Namely, the attorney argued that one could be convicted by the prosecution simply by the prosecution showing that one, quote, possession of a forged or counterfeit seal or impression, two, the accused possessed a forged or counterfeit seal with knowledge that it was counterfeit, and then willfully concealed the seal's counterfeit nature. Apparently, as so specified, that does not include an intent to defraud. And maybe that's a CIMT, maybe it's not. It does not matter, because the Ninth Circuit said that that's not actually how California courts have interpreted this statute. 
Rather, California courts have held that forgery, including this one, quote, has three elements, a writing or subject of forgery, the false making of the writing, and intent to defraud, end quote. Of equal importance, the Ninth Circuit didn't agree with Mr. Vasquez Borjas's reading of the statutory text, Mr. Vasquez Borjas couldn't find any case to support his reading, and the California jury instructions confirm that the intent to defraud is required to convict. All devastating to Mr. Vasquez Borjas's CIMT argument. So it's a CIMT. Nevertheless, there is, quote, an exception where the person has committed only one crime, the maximum penalty for which did not exceed one year, and the sentence imposed did not exceed six months, end quote. That's the INA Section 212A2AII petty offense exception. And it looks like Mr. Vasquez Borjas's conviction might have met that definition here, but his attorney, or perhaps he himself pro se, did not make the argument before the immigration judge or the BIA devastating. Because for that reason, and even if true, the Ninth Circuit wouldn't analyze the issue, deeming the petty offense exception argument unexhausted. Alas. So Mr. Vasquez Borjas did not succeed. And I've got something more on exhaustion to exhaust. Council put up quite the fight on the exhaustion issue. For example, In Abib v. Gonzalez, published by the Ninth Circuit in 2005, the Ninth Circuit held that if an IJ addresses an issue, but the respondent doesn't argue it to the BIA, and then the BIA affirms the IJ's entire decision, as often happens, the non-citizen can still challenge the issue before the Ninth Circuit, notwithstanding the non-citizen's failure to bring it before the BIA. Big holding to remember in the Ninth Circuit. Not the case here, because Mr. Vasquez Borjas did not make the argument before the IJ, but good to know. And that is Vasquez Borjas v. Garland. Sticking with the Ninth Circuit, we have Mendoza Garcia v. Garland, published by the Ninth on June 10, 2022. This is a complicated one about aggravated felony theft offenses. Mr. Mendoza-Garcia is a longtime lawful permanent resident from Mexico. In 2016, he was convicted of first-degree burglary of a dwelling under Oregon Revised Statute Section 164.225. If that's an aggravated felony, it makes him removable. Now, right off the bat, we know it's not an aggravated felony crime of violence under 101A43F, as many such crimes used to be under 18 U.S.C. Section 16B because in Sessions v. DeMaia, the Supreme Court held that Section 16b was unconstitutional. So one hurdle avoided. The Oregon burglary statute isn't going to be a crime of violence type aggravated felony. But it could still be an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43G, a theft or burglary offense with a sentence to at least one year imprisonment. It seems that Mr. Mendoza-Garcia has the one-year sentence to a term of imprisonment which makes this case mostly about whether the elements of the Oregon offense match the definition of a theft or burglary-type aggravated felony, which of course requires application of the categorical approach. Now, Mr. Mendoza-Garcia definitely had an argument that the crime doesn't meet that definition. After all, in the United States v. Cisneros, the Ninth Circuit held that Oregon first-degree burglary, this very statute, is not a categorical match to generic burglary, because the definition of building used in the statute 
includes non-permanent and immobile structures, such as booths, vehicles, boats, or aircrafts. And burglary of those types of structures are not really within the generic federal definition of burglary, as the Supreme Court has explained in the past. That means that Oregon criminalizes more types of burglary than does the federal government, and so the Oregon conviction is not a categorical match to an aggravated felony theft offense. That's what the Ninth Circuit said in Cisneros. The problem is, is that two years later in the United States v. Stitt, the Supreme Court held that, quote, the inclusion of non-permanent structures designed or adapted for overnight use does not expand a statute beyond the definition of generic burglary, end quote. That seems to be a rationale similar to that relied upon in Cisneros, so it's definitely potentially undermining of the rationale in Cisneros. In many cases, that doesn't matter. Cisneros is a published Ninth Circuit opinion, and Ninth Circuit panels can't overrule other Ninth Circuit panels. However, if a Ninth Circuit panel believes that the Supreme Court has so undermined a prior panel decision that the two decisions have become, quote, irreconcilable, end quote, well then, the new panel must follow the Supreme Court. That's what the Ninth Circuit panel held here. Stitt is irreconcilable with Cisneros, and so Stitt must be followed and not Cisneros. Okay. Now, as discussed on episode 50 in Diaz-Flores v. Garland, another Ninth Circuit panel explained that this Oregon statute is actually divisible into two separate crimes. The first is burglary of a dwelling with an intent to commit a crime, and the second is burglary of a non-dwelling with an intent to commit a crime plus some aggravating factor. I haven't read Diaz-Flores in a minute. But combined with what they're saying here about Cisneros and Stitt, it would appear that the first way of committing this crime, the burglary of a dwelling, is going to match the definition of a burglary-typed aggravated felony because now, Oregon's definition of a dwelling is not broader than the federal definition of dwellings for burglary purposes. That's what happens when we're following Stitt rather than Cisneros. And true to form, that's what the Ninth Circuit made clear in this decision. Oregon's definition of a dwelling is materially identical to the federal generic definition, as explained by the Supreme Court. That's the main holding here, to be honest with you. But the rationale is important. In addition to Stitt, it looks like it comes down to whether the non-traditional dwellings that can be burglarized in Oregon, like boats, will nevertheless satisfy the federal generic definition of burglary, if those dwellings are sufficiently occupied. If those dwellings are not occupied much, then maybe Oregon's definition of a dwelling would be broader than the federal definition. But the requirement in Oregon of such structures that they have, quote, adaptation for overnight accommodation, forecloses the applicability of the statute to vehicles or structures that might provide occasional shelter, despite being designed for other purposes, such as a car in which a homeless person occasionally sleeps, end quote. So Oregon is making clear that these non-traditional structures must be occupied, at least intermittently, to constitute a dwelling for purposes of the Oregon definition. And that is substantially similar to the federal definition of a dwelling. Nor is there a, quote, realistic probability that Oregon courts would extend first-degree burglary to curtilages or separate buildings, end quote, on a property. Take me back to one Ellen Barr study with curtilage rearing its ugly head. Good luck on the bar, by the way, recent law school grads. 
Finally, to conclude on the rationale with this whole dwelling thing, both Oregon and the feds require that the burglarer have an intent to commit a crime once inside the dwelling. That seals the analysis. The first way to commit an Oregon burglary matches the federal burglary definition used at INA Section 101A43G. That makes it an aggravated felony. Not for nothing, though, the second way to violate the statute, the burglary of a non-dwelling, would appear to be overbroad, and so would not likely satisfy the aggravated felony definition. The question then for Mr. Mendoza-Garcia is, which burglary did he do? The first kind or the second kind? We can look and see using the modified categorical approach, because as the Ninth Circuit held in Diaz-Flores, the statute is divisible into these two separate crimes. And it doesn't look like the prosecution charged it with specificity, something that itself indicates non-divisibility, but that ship has already sailed with Diaz-Flores. Nonetheless, in his plea agreement, Mr. Mendoza-Garcia admitted that, quote, I unlawfully and knowingly entered and remained in an occupied dwelling with the intent to commit the crime of theft therein, end quote. That satisfied the Ninth Circuit that Mr. Mendoza-Garcia had been convicted of the first type of burglary. With an aggravated felony finding, Mr. Mendoza-Garcia is barred from most relief from removal, including the asylum he applied for. But it doesn't per se bar withholding of removal unless the imprisonment term is at least five years, and that wasn't the case here. Where that's not the case, there is a required three-step analysis for IJs to determine whether the crime is particularly serious, such that withholding of removal is barred. Specifically, an IJ must consider 1. Quote, the nature of the conviction, 2. the type of sentence imposed, and 3. the circumstances and underlying facts of the conviction. End quote. In this case, the IJ made those findings, but on appeal to the BIA, it appears that the BIA, instead of reviewing the IJ's findings de novo as the BIA must, quote, applied a presumption that the conviction was a particularly serious crime and required him to rebut this presumption. End quote. To the Ninth Circuit, that's totally wrong. The BIA must conduct a case-by-case analysis of the crime using the three-factor test, and nothing, not even murder it would seem, quote, is exempt from this multi-factor analysis based solely on the elements of the offense, end quote. Word. The Ninth Circuit did affirm denial of cat deferral, though, but the case was remanded for the withholding of removal issue. Congratulations Nancy Alexander for Petitioner, and Carrie Hong and many exceptional law students for contributing to Ayla's amicus. I know you didn't get the full one you wanted, but still a remand. And just to clarify. Back to the aggravated felony thing, because actually whether Mr. Mendoza-Garcia was sentenced to a term of imprisonment of at least one year was disputed. Mr. Mendoza-Garcia argued that the 55 months he received could have simply been sanctions of some sort rather than actual incarceration. If true, it couldn't have been an aggravated felony because this specific aggravated felony under 101A43G requires a term of imprisonment sentence of at least one year. Unfortunately for Mr. Mendoza-Garcia, apparently under Oregon law, for sentences like this, the 55 months that he received constitutes a sentence to incarceration. I don't know, there seems to be an easier way for the Ninth Circuit to have resolved this dispute. Was Mr. Mendoza-Garcia incarcerated or not? But maybe I'm missing something. And in any event, the phrase term of imprisonment gets a bit weird under immigration law. And that is Mendoza-Garcia v. Garland. (laughs) 
Going to head on over to the Fifth Circuit now for some back-to-back from immigration. The first being Fosu v. Garland, published by the Fifth on June 7, 2022. This case is about aggravated felonies. Mr. Fosu is a lawful permanent resident from Ghana. But 11 years after his admission as an LPR, he was convicted of conspiracy to commit bank and wire fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. section 1349, and he was sentenced to one year and one day of imprisonment in order to pay over $200,000 in restitution. That fact pattern is a somewhat classic INA section 11843U aggravated felony charge. That is, a conspiracy to commit a different aggravated felony here. INA Section 101A43M. That latter aggravated felony that Mr. Fasu is alleged to have conspired to commit describes a quote, offense that involves fraud or deceit, in which the loss to the victim or victims exceeds $10,000. The IJ and the BIA found that Mr. Fasu was removable and denied all forms of relief and protection that he applied for. It appears that Mr. Fasu represented himself here on petition for review before the Fifth Circuit, and it appears that he remained detained during the proceedings. I say this because his petition for review to the Fifth Circuit was actually one day late, even though it was timely postmarked. And Oil argued to give him a break. It argued that because of the quote prison mailbox rule, end quote, the Fifth Circuit should still deem Mr. Fasu's petition for review timely. And the Fifth Circuit agreed. Under the prison mailbox rule, an inmate's filing, quote, is timely if it is deposited in the institution's internal mail system on or before the last day for filing, and it contains a compliance certificate of service or evidence showing that the data was deposited and the postage was paid, end quote. All of that happened here. And even though this rule arises in criminal proceedings, quote, the prison mailbox rule applies to pro se detainees in immigration proceedings, end quote might not apply to represented detained non-citizens, but apparently that was not the case here, so on to the merits of the case. Mr. Fasu, again, apparently pro se and arguing one of the more complicated issues in all of crimmigration, argued that the IJ and the BIA erred in finding him removable because the $200,000 plus that he was ordered to pay in restitution was not tethered to any fraud or deceit conviction, as the aggravated felony provision requires. But that's not what the BIA held below. The BIA held that the $200,000 restitution order was directly tethered to the conspiracy to commit wire fraud conviction. Wire fraud involves fraud, and the amount is much greater than $10,000. The Fifth Circuit didn't find any error in that analysis. After all, at least in the Fifth Circuit, quote, when determining the losses to victims, the IJ can rely on sentencing-related material, including a restitution order. End quote. Mr. Fasu also argued that his counsel below was ineffective, but Mr. Fasu never argued that before the BIA, so the Fifth Circuit deemed the argument unexhausted. As it doesn't appear that Mr. Fasu really provided cognizant challenges to the denial of withholding and cat protection on the merits, the Fifth Circuit affirmed the removal order. And that is Fasu v. Garland. That leaves us with Monson Yem v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on June 7th, 2022. This case is primarily about divisibility. Mr. Monson Yem is from Nigeria and entered the United States as a lawful permanent resident in 2009. 
He likely did other things while he was here, but also in 2017, he was convicted of the felony offense of injury to a child in violation of Texas Penal Code Section 22.04, subsection A3. DHS placed him in removal proceedings, arguing that he should lose his green card because the crime qualified as a crime of child abuse, child abandonment, or child neglect in violation of INA Section 237A2EI. Mr. Monsanyem moved to terminate his proceedings, arguing that his offense didn't qualify and he should be able to keep his green card. In essence, he argued that subsection A3 was a means of committing a Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 offense rather than a separate crime in and of itself, meaning that the legal focus under the categorical approach must be on Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 as a whole. And that statute, read as a whole and not with its individual subsections, permits convictions for injuries to other people besides children, like the elderly or the disabled. Don't get me wrong, not great, but certainly not crimes of child abuse. The IJ disagreed and then denied Mr. Monsanyem's application for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA. Although no hardship is required for that form of relief, the IJ appears to have believed that Mr. Monsanyem didn't warrant the relief as a matter of discretion. The BIA affirmed, and then so did the Fifth Circuit. And before the Fifth Circuit, like Mr. Fasu before him, Mr. Monsanyem represented himself. A wild thing for anyone to have to do. First, the Fifth Circuit held that the IJ was permitted to analyze whether Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 was divisible into separate subsections and separate crimes, even though it appears that DHS did not make the argument. Unsurprising to me, that is kind of what IJs are for. Quote, when an issue or claim is properly before the court, the court is not limited to the particular legal theories advanced by the parties, but rather retains the independent power to identify and apply the proper construction of governing law, End quote. And that's the Supreme Court talking. The Fifth Circuit also agreed with the IJ and the BIA, Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 is divisible into separate crimes, meaning that subsection A3 is separate from, say, a subsection A2 offense, meaning that the focus is on subsection A3 rather than Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 as a whole and as Mr. Monsanyem argued and wanted. The Fifth Circuit reached this holding for many reasons. First, it believed it probative that a, quote, affirmative defense provided in subsection 22.04am suggests that the statute is divisible as to victim classes, end quote. This is interesting to me because BIA and circuit precedent often state that affirmative defenses do not apply to the categorical or modified categorical analysis. But here the Fifth Circuit is applying it first and foremost. Seems like the BIA used this logic too. I shall remember. That wasn't all, of course. Texas state case law also indicates that the statute is divisible, although not conclusively. According to the Fifth Circuit, the jury instructions also support divisibility, as those instructions indicate that a jury must conclude that the accused harmed a child, elderly person, or a disabled person, and then fill in the blank with one of those three, and only three, classes of people. But still the Fifth Circuit wasn't entirely convinced. So it applied the Mathis Peak, looking at Mr. Monsanyem's conviction documents themselves, 
to see that he was charged with violating, quote, injury to a child pursuant to section 22.04a, end quote. Honestly, still not the strongest stuff, as even the indictment didn't list a subsection A3 charge. But all told, it was enough to find that the statute is divisible, and that Mr. Monsanyem was convicted of violating the portion that applies only to children. So to summarize, even though Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 as a whole is broader than the immigration definition of child abuse because it permits injury to elderly people and the disabled, it doesn't matter, because the statute is divisible, Mr. Monsanyem was convicted of a subsection A3 offense, and that subsection only applies to harm to children. Therefore, Mr. Monsanyem is removable. As to cancellation of his removal, well, it appears that Mr. Monsanyem didn't sufficiently argue the issue before the Fifth Circuit when he was representing himself pro se. And in any event, he probably would have run headfirst into Patel and its jurisdiction review bar of such issues in almost all cases. But don't forget! If Mr. Monsanyem had had an attorney, and if, of course, a case exists in Texas case law, Mr. Monsanyem could have won if he could have presented the Fifth Circuit with evidence that Texas prosecutes Texas Penal Code Section 22.04 without always requiring a jury to identify the class of victim. That's the realistic probability test, and who knows? Maybe it actually applies to this statute. Undiscussed in this case. And that is Monsanyem v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.